Amen. The Lord is good. Amen. The Lord is good. The song speaks to my heart because all of those phrases uh, I have a problem with. And I kind of need the Lord to help me as we all do. Let's pray once again. Lord, we, we bow before your presence and you tell us, Lord, where two or three are gathered together, there you are in the midst. And we learn that that's not a verse for a small meeting, that's a verse for discipleship. That whenever we talk about you, when we gather together to learn of you, to sit at your feet, you are here. So thank you, Lord that you are alive. You send your spirit, work in our hearts this morning, we pray in your great name, for your glory, amen. This passage in James um, about riches and planning and the future and money, oh boy, it speaks to us, right? James is such a wonderful book because uh, he weaves all of these themes and he comes back to them often as he moves through. The one theme that's uh, a dominant one, there must have been uh, a problem in the Jerusalem church with people who were of good means, of, of, who were rich, who had uh, means, and they were not having a Christ perspective about that, with that. And if you notice, chapter 1, verses 9 and 11, he touches on it. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Notice he spends time talking to the rich. He doesn't say much to the poor. Chapter 2 uh, verses 1 to 7, it says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes come into your assembly, and a poor man is shabby, has shabby clothing and also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He goes on and talks about the poor in the world who will be rich. Uh, and again, he's talking to this group, I believe. Even in chapter five, which we'll get at next week, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Yikes, okay, talk about making friends and influencing, right? He's, he's telling it that uh, something is very, very wrong here. Now, when you look at all of these passages, James is not saying that uh, it, it's, it's better to be poor. He's addressing a problem among the rich in that church. And he's also addressing the problem with us, our wealth, 
affects our love for God and others. Now, you may be thinking possibly, well, my income is not a wealthy income, so this message doesn't really apply to me. Um, I hope you don't check out because that's not the case. Listen, if forever, if you've ever had contempt for a person who has a lot of money, you have a problem with riches. You see, we have an attitude toward it that sometimes gets right into who we are, even though we don't have a lot. One of the ways to try to understand where James is coming from in this passage is you probably have heard uh, narcissistic personality disorder, right? It's been very popular these days. It's this grandiosity that's seen in a person when he or she exaggerates their achievements and talents and expects to be recognized as superior without the commensurate details that go along with causing that person to really be superior. And they're locked into it. I remember in school when we were learning about this, I read about it and I said, you know, I see a lot of things about this that's, that's like me. So I asked the, the professor, I said, how do you know you, you don't have, you have this? And she basically said, look, if you're thinking that you do have it, then you don't have it. Because people who have this narcissistic tendency are locked in. They do not see that they have it. And so they live in this box thinking that they are the best, that they are the most, that everything they do is the best. Now, I'm not saying that affluent people are narcissists. We are all affluent, but there is a blindness to it or a bubble to our affluence that cause us to not see things clearly. And that's what James, I believe, is getting at in chapter four in the passage that we're looking at, verse 13. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know that what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. He gets right to it here in this passage, this idea of a life that we can kind of plan and go on and do things on our own without really considering God, without getting the perspective that we need. And see, if you're taking notes today, in order to crack the self-sufficiency myth that we all have is that we must get perspective. Listen to what Dallas Willard says in his book, Life Without Lack. It's a beautiful book on the 23rd Psalm. I would recommend it. Uh, but he says this, what is the effect on our faith when we are focused on self-attainment and recognition? Jesus put his finger on it when speaking to the Pharisees. 
How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor from God alone? He goes on, he says, as long as people are hung up on the honor from other people, reputation, appearing well, gaining riches, they cannot truly believe and trust God. The failure to have both faith and death to self is one we must come to terms with, or we simply cannot enter into this life without lack. James is calling us to get that kind of perspective. Realize that you are dust. You know, I, we have uh, pictures in our living room, dining room of the family, and uh, now I'm a grandfather. Woo, that is fun, I'll tell you. Being a grandparent is a lot of fun. And there's a picture with my father and with me and his grandkids, and now I'm a grandfather. But, you know, I hate to break it to myself when I look at those pictures. Like in two or three generations, they're going to be talking like, uh, who's this guy, Gerard? Was, did he preach? Was, did he? Who? What? Uh, anyway, let's watch the football game. A mist. We feel really important. I feel really important now being up in front of you. I'm actually speaking to you people who are amazing people. You know, and in the beginning, when I started doing this, you know, you, you kind of are, look, anybody who gets called to full-time service, right? They do it in a humble way, and they are of great faith, right? Wrong. There are times when, you know, in the beginning, you feel like you are going to change the world, that things are going to be, you, you have the gospel down. You understand it. You're going to preach it and teach it. And you then get into the ministry and you realize what is happening. And it's not what you thought. Ricky Skaggs wrote this song. Those of you bluegrass lovers out there. Any bluegrass lovers out there? A couple, a couple of you guys. It's a great song called, called Seven Hillsides. Seven Hillsides. And it's about this pastor, this young pastor, who has to uh, preside over a funeral of seven men who died, brothers who died during World War II. I don't think it's a true story, but it, it gets into not so much the heart of those who are suffering, but the weakness of the preacher. Listen, all night I've wrestled Jacob's angels and prayed with Matthew, Luke, and John struggling to find the words you face the task that comes upon this blood red dawn i've buried men before their time of alcohol and blackened lung but how to bury seven of these appalachian miners sons who stormed the beaches wave on wave and sailed home to these rocky graves in family plots that bear their names and then his, the chorus is, tomorrow I'll walk up seven hillsides, tremble before my flock on seven hillsides, seven sorrows, seven sons, seven mothers, and everyone will turn to me for the word of God. What does this mean? And there I'll stand, good book in hand, a shepherd to these precious lambs, what will I say? 
what can I say? He goes on, it's beautiful. And I'll just say a couple more of these lines. He says, to tell the truth, I've never thought much about the will of God before. Called to preach at 17, I was in love with fiery words and not much more. The time has come to keep the faith for others shattered by their loss. Remind them of the loving God whose son like theirs paid the cost to save a sad and wicked world through sacrifice. Our love is heard. And I pray that I believe those words. That's the awareness of weakness. That's the awareness of being a myth, a mist. That's the awareness of understanding that in all your grandiosity or confidence or self-control in our day, James is saying, listen, it's okay to plan, but do you recognize how short your life is? Do you recognize how fragile you are? Can you trust God with everything in your life? You see, that's the first step toward getting uh, this affluence that we have in perspective, getting this perspective that we are amiss. He goes on, James, and it's, it gets a little complicated here, but it's, it's beautiful because also what he says is that God is much more generous than you think. We have to get, he says, theological. Right? Not only are we vanishing this, but God is this great giver. Everything we have is from Him. Everything. Everything is a gift. The fact that we could get up this morning and breathe this beautiful day and breathe it in and see it and, and enjoy it is a gift. The fact that we can be here, listen to what He says in chapter one in verse five in getting a grip on this whole idea of affluence and the bubble it creates. In verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, this is the first hint of James talking about God giving. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Think about what he is saying there. It's amazing. If anyone, any believer who lacks wisdom, ask God who gives what? generously, notice that, he gives generously, his promises to give wisdom is a generous promise, he's going to do it continually to all without reproach, it has nothing to do with how good you were in the past, how good you're going to be in the future, how good you are now, God is willing to give wisdom, I know some of you there are thinking, you know, I, I don't even ask for wisdom, and sometimes when I have, I, I don't think I got it, I, uh, all right, I'm not sure where you're at, but James is saying, ask God for wisdom. He wants to give it. He's a free giver of wisdom. There's a promise there. He gives generously. It's, he's not even like, well, I'll give you a, a little, uh, you know, here's a quarter. He's giving you wisdom. He's going to pour it on you. That's such an incredible promise. It's not based on past sins. There's no favoritism there. That's what it means without reproach. And it's continually. Look at what he says later in verse 17 of chapter one. 
Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Listen, God is the supreme giver. Do we know the heart of God like that? That he wants to give, and he does give all the time. He's the creator, we talk about, of great power, but he is also the sustainer. All good things come directly from him. The only reason why this universe, this earth, and everything else continues as it is, is not only because God is powerful, it's because God is good. He wants to give us good things. Listen to a, a paraphrase of this passage. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. So my dear friends, don't get thrown off course. Every desirable and beneficial gift comes out of heaven. The gifts are rivers of light cascading down from the Father of light. There is nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, nothing fickle. He brought us to life using the true word, showing us off as the crown of all his creatures. Amen. It's such a beautiful thing. You see, sometimes we think God is really good, but this whole evil thing, I don't get. Notice James is addressing the evil thing, not and in a very direct way when he talks about temptation, right? What temptation does, but he says, God is not evil, nor does he tempt us. James is making a very clear point, is that God is not the originator of evil. He does not put evil into our paths, and he wants to deliver us from it. Why? Because God is good. He is perfectly good. Evil and goodness do not meld with God. He is the father of lights. That's what it means, father of lights, that God is good. There's nothing deceitful in him. He is totally free from everything evil, holy, righteous, just. God has perfect integrity. He is genuine. He's faithful. There's no impurity. He will never change. Do we kind of get what that goodness is? You see, not only do we have to get perspective on our own lives, we also have to get a little theological. You know, understanding the greatness, the goodness of God. He is good. It's amazing when you think about evil and goodness. And, you know, there, that's probably the biggest issue or problem theologically to deal with. If God is good, why is there evil? Why is he allowed evil, et cetera, et cetera? And you read some of the greatest thinkers on this and what they, like Augustine and others, what they come up with was, is this, that the Bible doesn't give specifically a philosophical or clear theological reason on all the ins and outs of why he allowed evil to enter the earth. It's just not there. And, you know, I love, me and my OCD tendency, I want to have an answer, a bottom line, a finish. And I, I, there may be, 
it, it escapes me. But what the Bible does give us when we consider evil, and evil that has touched your life, evil that has touched my life, not only from within in my own decisions that I've made, but also from without and other things, social issues that impinge upon me or that we see in the world. You know what the Bible says? What helps us get through those kinds of things? It's this very thing, the goodness of God. It's a practical, it's a very practical reason to get past evil, the belief and understanding that God is good. You might say, well, how, how does that really work, Gerard? How does that really, uh, uh, you know, get us through to this kind of thing? Well, let me, let me share with you, and you know this very well, the Lord's Prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer, Jesus is basically saying a number of things. You can really talk to God. He listens, and God is good. And as a matter of fact, his goodness is closer than any evil you can even imagine. What? Yes. His goodness is closer than any evil that comes close to you. That's what the Lord's Prayer is talking about. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. I think I can do it from memory. Our Father, Father, we get that? God, the Father has embraced us. We are sons and daughters of God. Christ has made us righteous. We are justified by faith. Our Father, we come boldly to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done. Our Father who art in heaven. Now that used to give, that's used to give me a little bit of a, uh, a twist in my head because God, Father is close. I'm a son of God. He loves me. He's, but he's in heaven. He's like far away. You go to the first wormhole, you make a right, okay? Go to the second wormhole, make a left, and then a couple of million light years past that. There you go. You get to him. You're right? It's contradictory. God, our Father, who are, whoa, you're really far away. It's not too comforting when you pray it that way, is it? But when you think about what Jesus is saying about heaven, what is he saying about heaven? That's kingdom talk. When Jesus talked about the kingdom and about heaven, he said, you know, it's in your midst when I'm here. When God is working, his kingdom is here. We get on with the kingdom. It is what? He said the kingdom of God is what? Near. At hand. What Jesus is saying is our father, who art very near, his kingdom is near. Hallowed be thy name. You are amazing. You are good, you are great, you are holy, you are loving. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Lord, you are near and we want to see you. We want you to show up in our lives, in our families, in our jobs, everything that we do in our relationships and friendships. We want to see your kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen to how immediate the Lord's prayer is. Give us this day, what? Our daily bread. Like we're not, we're thinking that, you know, God, well, God's going to provide, I'll get a good job. Jesus is saying is he is so immediate that he provides for you every day. Isn't that a gift? That is a gift. 
incredible. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Life is a struggle. Jesus said it, right? In this world, you will have tribulation. Listen, I'm not saying that we should be in denial about evil. In this world, we will have tribulation. But Jesus said, what? I've overcome the world. Forgive us our trespasses. And then he ends it with what? Do you remember? Let's see if I can, I can get it. Forgive us our trespasses and we give those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. That's evil. Deliver us from evil. You see, the Bible doesn't give us all the ins and outs of that very difficult issue. But what he does give us is this, that God is not only powerful, but he is good and his goodness is closer than evil. You know how we know that? Because Jesus took the evil. Jesus took it all. He not only took our sins, he took the rebellion of Satan and his angels and everything that fights against the kingdom of God on the cross and rose victor from the dead. And we're just waiting. Listen, the D-Day, is it D-Day? Uh, I, I get this all mixed up. The war, the war is over. We're in cleanup mode. The war is over. Jesus rose from the dead. We're in cleanup mode. We're waiting for him to come back and finish it all. It will be a tribulating time. People will be in disobedience, but ultimately we'll get into that millennium. And then finally, we will get to the new heavens and new earth. Isn't that great? All the good things that we see and sense and feel here, the longings that we have that are good longings in that new earth. Do you imagine what it's going to be like? It's going to be incredible. You see, God has always, and I need to stop, God has always wanted his kingdom to dwell with the earth. That's why he created. And when we fell, there became what? A great divide. And God, through Israel, with the tabernacle, he dwelt with his people. And now in the church, through giving the Holy Spirit, we can see his kingdom dwell in our lives. And so in the millennium, we will see his kingdom clearly, another rebellion. But then finally, in the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom and the earth and creation will dwell together in complete and utter unity, and we will enjoy the goodness of God. It's God's goal. And he's done it in Christ. So, first two points about affluence. Get perspective. We are a vapor. Get theological. God is this incredible gift giver. God is good. Next week, we'll get into some of the others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Use these things, Lord, to cause us to grow and love you and worship. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Amen.